Hello and welcome to Cloud9Fin, a podcast on all things leverage finance. Here at 9Fin, we follow corporate debt from issuance to redemption, credits from performing to distressed, and everything else in between. I'm Chris Haffenden, editor, and I lead Europe's distressed and restructuring coverage at 9Fin. And today we're going to be talking about Adler Group and their recent appeal or hearing. And today I'm joined by Freddie Doust from our legal team, a restructuring lawyer who spent three days last week covering the appeal process. Welcome, Freddie. Thanks, Chris. Good to be on the podcast. Uh, good to have you. So why are we devoting a whole podcast today to Adler? Well, arguably, it's the most landmark case that we've had probably and the biggest test we've had for the UK restructuring plan. And we believe the decision could have a wider impact for future restructurings in the UK and how they're implica- implemented by the courts. But I think before we dive into a discussion between myself and Freddie, it's probably good to have a a couple of minutes to setting the scene, looking at what the background was to this case and what we believe the importance is to developing case law for UK restructuring plans. So Adler, it's a distressed German real estate asset manager and developer, and it probably became topical and got into the limelight in late 2021 with a sort of highly public short seller report from Vice Research, which alleged inflated valuations, a series of related party transactions, and questionable governance, and this sort of led to a number of uh, investigations um, with on this accounting, and also with BaFin as well. So you know, quite a lot of sort of scrutiny in terms of the business, and sort of faced with significant short-term maturities in the worsening German real estate market. Last November, Adler announced that it had actually struck a deal with the Steerco of uh, what it called representative bondholders. And this involved 935 million euros of new super senior financing being put in place, which would mature in May 2025. And the bulk of that money would repay 2023 and 2024 maturities at Adler Real Estate, which is a property owning subsidiary. And this debt was structurally senior to the rest of Adler Group's uh, senior unsecured notes, whose maturities were spread out between 2024 and 2029. And the plan envisaged a managed wind down of Adler Group, and the idea was to avoid a fire sale, uh, with most of its properties being sold in 2024 and 2025, and the proceeds then would be distributed out to its uh, bondholders. However, controversially, rather than being treated equally, that would be the case under a liquidation sale, the senior unsecured notes were treated differently under the proposed restructuring, with the 24s elevated to a one and a half lien as they were extended out for one year and as were the convertibles, which sat at another property-owning subsidiary, ADO Properties. So unable to implement the deal via a series of consent solicitations, as it failed to get the 75% acceptance thresholds from the longer-dated ad of the 29s, last December the company said it was still confident in implementing the restructuring because it could use an alternative implementation route. And in February, it launched the UK restructuring plan, which was unsurprisingly opposed to by the ad hoc group of 29 holders. Uh, and I was sort of present at the convening hearing at the time, which I sort of said that, you know, given the lateness of information disclosure to that group and their advisors, most of the substantive issues, including some that you normally have at the convening hearing were shifted to the sanction hearing stage. And also at sanction hearing stage, it was very, very tight in terms of timeline. It was compressed into three days. There was further evidence submitted on Day two, the closing submissions were also compressed and there was lots of written notes being sent to the judge rather than all submissions. So in the end, it was a little bit chaotic and it ended up hearing 
going on until after 6pm on uh, on, a, on a Wednesday afternoon. So I think that the problem there was that we saw a very, very hard deadline being imposed on the court because of the fact that there was a 24, there was a, sorry, there was maturity that was coming up on the 29th of April and effectively there was very little time to sort of implement the plan. And, you know, there was some talk about whether, you know, the, the court had been sort of jammed into making this decision. And then sort of finally, I suppose, in the approving of the plan, uh, Justice Leach did refuse permission to appeal, but the Court of Appeal, led by Lord Justice Snowden, did accept the application from the ad hoc group and the case was heard last week. So I suppose, Freddie, I suppose to kick off, the idea is to talk about what was novel under the yeah. restructuring plan here. Thank you, Chris, for bringing us up to speed. I mean, it's uh, it's quite a complicated one, but um, I suppose that the... Uh, the, the first point which is interesting is that it, it was a pretty novel use of the restructuring plan procedure. So uh, whilst obviously there are some examples of, um, and in particular in, in Gate Group, um, Zaccaroli said that the restructuring plan is kind of an insolvency proceeding. It's it's interesting that, you know, obviously they, they kind of fall under the Companies Act, but that they, they have been deemed to be insol insolvency proceedings, but they have pretty much to date only been used to implement business rescues. So in the in, in that sense this is quite an interesting one because it's um you know it's it's being used to facilitate a kind of solvent wind down um as opposed to a uh, you know a liquidation which would be the the obvious alternative for this just touching on what you were saying chris around um their kind of their uh their capital structure so in, in the context of the restructuring plan which was 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 posited at the time back in back in april um, so they obviously got a series of um, senior unsecured notes ranging from 24 to 29. Um, those different um, those different maturity profiles, those they, they were all put into different classes under the plan. Um, it's interesting because normally what you try to do, particularly in the context of a, of a scheme, is you try to limit the number of classes. But here you had a bit of a proliferation of classes, which is which is useful here because obviously, as Chris said, the 29s were opposing the plan. And a key feature of restructuring plans is an ability to cram down dissenting classes of creditors, which is exactly what happened here. So what happened was that all classes, bar the 29s, voted in favour of the plan. And the reason, obviously, that they voted against was because um, they were the last maturing, so they were effectively temporarily subordinated. Um, so the plan company asked the court to cram down the class so that the plan could go ahead and be, be implemented. Um, so as I say, the plan was vigorously opposed by the 29s. Um, but ultimately what happened was, um, you know, notwithstanding the fact that they said that their grounds um, at the time were pretty much the same as they are now actually at appeal, um, which was that the plan unfairly deprived them of pari passi treatment, which is what they would have had um, in the in a liquidation kind of counterfactual. Um, and they also said, and this actually goes to a little bit to the compressed timeline um, points that, that Chris was, was, was just raising, which is that um, they didn't really have very much time to interrogate the valuation evidence which was presented. They put across um, different valuation evidence, um, but they said that the valuation evidence of the, of the company, the planned company, was, was significantly overstated. So, I mean, I don't know, Chris, whether you want to kind of mention what, what kind of happened and what the ultimate outcome was at the time. Yeah, I mean, he did obviously sanction the plan um, I suppose the, the the questions that sort of came up at the time was back to the point about the alternative, the relevant alternative being, you know, a liquidation and normally you would actually have like pari treatment. There was some debt there which was elevated. Um, and one of the things that 29s were quite keen on was to say, well, let's just harmonise, you know, the, uh, the maturities and then everybody will just get paid out equally. 
and all at the same time uh, from the proceeds. Exactly, and that's what would happen in a in a liquidation scenario, right? And and therefore you don't have the risk of the kind of temporal subordination, which is basically the risk that the twenty nines had, because ultimately they're paid out last. And the risk is that all of the good properties are sold, then the kind of that's the low hanging fruit, and then the harder properties to sell will be it will be deferred. And so there's that their chances of being paid out at the back end, they're just back of the queue. Yeah, and I think one of the things that seemed to sway the judge very much here was the fact that the the plan was expecting under the sort of projected scenarios, the most probable outcome would be par recovery to all. So in theory, whatever the treatment, maybe it might not be an equal treatment, but at the end of the end of the day, the outcome should still be that everyone gets paid out in full. But I think one of the interesting things that cropped up on the appeal, and I think is something that's definitely worth mentioning, is when can you depart from that principle? So okay. is that the case that, you know, that's something that is easy for you to depart from just because the fact you are going to get recoveries which are significantly better than the relevant alternative? The relevant alternative, I think the recoveries were somewhere in the 50s. And here you are getting par recovery. So you're actually not just getting slightly more, you're getting substantially more. Yes, exactly. Which was a point which was brought up time and time again. It was kind of the central thrust of the company's argument on appeal. So it probably makes sense for us to kind of move on to the appeal now, I guess. Yeah. Um, so the we we the, the the plan company ended up getting a permission to appeal from um, Snowden, um, and then that started last week. Um, we at Ninefin were present for the three-day hearing marathon, uh, and we produced uh, a series of end-of-day summaries. Um, so do take a look at those. The so Tom Smith KC uh, reprising rep- reprising his role as um, as the the KC for the twenty nines and Daniel Bayfield KC for the company. Um, they kind of balanced their time between between themselves. Um, and I think it's fair to say, just a kind of as an aside, that Lord Justice Snowden was definitely the most engaged of the three judges, which isn't particularly surprising given he is uh, certainly the most, the, 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 has the most expertise in the field. But I mean, I, I, I suppose it probably makes sense just to kind of pause and talk a little bit about the crux of what the 29's argument was. And as we said, it's kind of pretty similar to what they, what they said uh, at first instance, which is that, you know, the most likely alternative to the restructuring plan was a liquidation of the group. That was kind of broadly common ground. Um, if there was a liquidation, all unsecured group claims would rank pari passu. Um, that's the pari passu principle, which we, we've been referring to. And the company departed from that under the plan. But they can't do that, the argument is, unless there's good justification for so doing, which we'll take a deeper dive into in just a minute. Um, but I, I, I guess it's good. It's a good point just to kind of mention, you know, what is it that the, the twenty nine actually wants? Because <laughs> well, it's kind of the, the plan's been implemented, right? So that's right. The money's been dispersed. You know, the, the the restructuring has been implemented. So the the real question was, you know, what is going to happen here? You know, so and, and I think it only really became at the end of the submissions from from Tom Smith that the question was asked, and they really got the answer. And the answer is effectively they want the original judgment to be set aside which means that effectively then they will come back you know, to the negotiating table. Um, I suppose the difficulty on that is to say, well, the money has already been dispersed. The 2023s and 24 Adler bonds have already been repaid. So I think it's unlikely that that can be unwound. But there is probably an argument to say that you could maybe recut the rest of the deal and either harmonise the maturities or come up with some means that you know people get paid out pro rata rather than via the sort of temporal sonority that still remains in place. So they have to structure and negotiate. Everyone has to go back to the negotiating table. They have to structure some kind of pari-passu compliant plan. Um, presumably they have, they'll have a bit of time to do that because there's no imminent burning platform at the moment. 
Um, but I suppose that's, you know, a question for another time. And it's pretty foolish in any event to, to predict what it is that the, the court will say, because um, judges are pretty unpredictable. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose one of the things that um, I think cropped up a lot here was that in a lot of the case law that's been put together on the UK restructuring plans um, has relied quite a lot on the more tried and trusted tests and routes that we've seen for English schemes of arrangement and also for CVAs. And I think one of the things that, because of the fact that you do cram down under UK restructuring plan, which you don't do on those other two processes, you know, whether there's actually a different bar and, you know, and, and exercising his discretion to to sanction the plan, whether there is actually a higher bar and a different sort of test or, you know, the test might have to, you know, be implemented in a different way. Uh, we've also got an exciting new feature to share with you, which is Ninefin AI. So within seconds, you can get answers to questions such as, what does a company do? How could it deleverage? Who are its competitors? And you can look at this using chat GDP type feature from over 700 companies in the Ninefin universe. So please head over to ninefin.com forward slash insights to try it for free. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose that's probably quite a nice segue to start talking about some of the key themes which came out of the appeal hearing and, and what the judges were kind of saying during the appeal. Um, so uh, the, the 20, 29s basically had kind of eight grounds or so of appeal, but they all very significantly overlapped. Um, and I think it's fair to say that there was kind of one key ground in the middle of that big Venn diagram of grounds, um, which was the departure from the Paripassi principle. And the point there that there, there was a departure, A, and B, there wasn't good justification for that departure because it was it was accepted on both sides that you can depart, but there needs to be good justification for, for so doing. Um, and the argument of the 29s was that there wasn't. Um, and therefore, on that basis, the judge should not have exercised his discretion to um, sanction the scheme, sorry, sanction the plan and, um, you know, take the cross-class cram down power. Um, so I suppose it probably makes sense just to if we are to start talking about that chris that we kind of go through a couple of those concepts sure um so i suppose the first point is well the the, the key questions are you know what's needed to cram down a class what does what does a, a court a judge need to be satisfied with what's meant to be what what is the relevant alternative what is the no worse off test and what is the parry principle as i mentioned all of these strands overlap a fair bit um, the no worse off test is one of two conditions uh, to jurisdiction which the court must be satisfied, are satisfied, in order to basically access their cross-class cram down power. And they can only impose, the court can only impose the plan on a dissenting class, class if they are satisfied that that, is, that has been satisfied and that an in-the-money in class supports the plan. So those are kind of the two jurisdictional hurdles, if you like. The relevant alternative um, oh, sorry, I should just mention that the no worse off test is basically a satisfaction that um, uh, the dissenting class would be no worse off than they would be if the restructuring plan was not sanctioned. So, you know, a liquidation basically in this in this case. The relevance alternative, um, that is basically the, uh, the, the, the kind of counterfactual, if you like, in the no worse off test. Uh, I suppose on this, it's slightly different to a normal UK restructuring plan because you are talking about a relative alternative of being a liquidation as opposed to a managed liquidation or managed wind down. So it's not like, as you mentioned at the very start, it's not like we're pres you're preserving that business. Yeah, yes. So, uh, I think that's quite important because that sort of skews you a little bit more to saying, well, you know, therefore you should be really looking at power pursuit treatment. Yeah, yeah I think that's fair. 
Um, and, and here it was kind of common ground that it is liquidation. Um, so that then kind of brings us on to the, the, the pari-passi principle, which is basically that in that counterfactual and that relevant alternative, so here liquidation, um, you know, that the unsecured creditors would in that scenario receive pro rata distributions uh, from the relevant alternative. And that's kind of a central tenet to English restructuring law. And it's, and it's really central to the 29's appeal. Um, so what they're saying effectively, we've kind of said this before, but just to be really clear, the first instance judge should not have exercised discretion to sanction the plan on the grounds that it departs from the pari passi principle in an unjustified way. I suppose that sort of links into the the, the sort of fairness point as well that the you know judge when he's exercising his discretion has to believe that the plan is fair. So I suppose it's trying to think about what constitutes fairness and how he evaluates that. Exactly, exactly. And I suppose that you know. That's a good point, Chris, because I think the, because obviously you've got all of the, the scheme case law, which exists, uh, there, there has been a bit of a kind of, you know, control C, control V type approach in terms of using the scheme, using the scheme approach. Um, but in terms of the fairness question, it's, it's a slightly different one. Um, it's, it's, I think that it's, it's pretty unfettered for the, for the courts, you know, they, they, they there's, there's no, there's no fettering their ability to determine what is fair or isn't fair and therefore to sanction on that basis or not to sanction. Um, but I think kind of, and we'll touch on this in a, in a second, but I think where we're getting to or, or kind of what the direction of travel seem to, seems to be is that there might be a bit more of a framework put in place around what, it, you know, what, what should be taken into account by the judges when, uh, determining whether to exercise their discretion or not. Yeah, so I think this is something that we see a lot in schemes and CVAs is you have something called the you know, the the honest and reasonable person approach that an honest and reasonable person will see that proposal as being fair. And then there's something also that we talk about in terms of the horizontal comparator to sort of see about the treatment. Between uh, the creditors. Between right? the creditors. Yeah. And that, that's always been seen as the sort of two sort of, you know, points you have to get across initially but I think one of the interesting things that came up on the case was about you know how far that gets you and I think Snowden was talking very much about you know whether this is a gateway or not and this in the very early parts of the UK restructuring plan we had deep ocean where the judge in that case was talking about you know if those conditions were met that there was a fair wind to approving the plan but I get the impression that since then that the judges have sort of reined back on that and I suppose I mean that's in the context of a scheme where you've got just a single class of creditors and, and the judge will be broadly speaking satisfied that um, you know they are the best judges of their own commercial interests and if there is um, o over the kind of uh, over the um, the required threshold you know over 75% in value and 50% by number have voted in favour under a scheme then they, they can kind of basically take that as as, as, as a given that they are satisfied and therefore they can approve it and it is fair because they are the best judges but here what you've got is multiple different classes and one class here who does not agree and therefore you know you can't really apply the the the, the kind of reasonable man approach mm -hmm. because you know who who is reasonable in this scenario is it the dissenters is it the consenting party the consenting classes it doesn't really make sense in a scenario where you've got multiple multiple classes who um, take different views. Yeah, I think another thing that cops up a lot in these cases is the the phrase, the restructuring surplus and how that's allocated. I don't know, Fred, if you want to give a bit of a, a sort of very, very quick sort of TLDR in terms of how that is viewed. Yeah, so I mean, I think <clears throat> it's, it's a good point. And I, I think that th this is 
this is what 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 this is getting to is the framework um, around discretion that it seems Snowden was kind of trying to say might be an appropriate way for judges to determine what's fair in the future when deciding whether to cram down a class. Um, and I suppose just rowing back quickly. So the first point is in, t- t- in determining whether um, it, something is fair, whether they should exercise their discretion, um, satisfaction of the no worse off tests is not sufficient. That's just a jurisdictional gateway, right? So that cannot be determinative as and of itself. And that's kind of what, so kind of Bayfield was kind of saying for the for the plan company, you know, they are going to be treated so much better under the plan than they would be in the counterfactual. Um, that must be in his in his kind of in his argument that must be a reason for sanction. Well, no, it's a it's a, it's, it's just a jurisdictional gateway. It's not um, well. It can be a consideration, but it's not the sole consideration. And mm-hmm. um, I think that I mean that was one of the primary arguments of um, of, of of Smith, but. Yeah. I think they're, so. They're saying that there's a bit of fudging going on between satisfaction of the no worse off test and kind of you know discretion and fairness and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But on the restructuring surplus point, um, the, the the difference between the restructure, the relevant alternative, and the realizations under the plan is the the surplus. And so the heart of the question is kind of what happens to that surplus under the plan. Um, what is a fair allocation of the surplus, and what's a fair allocation of the risks? Um, um, is it fair to allocate more of the surplus to some classes and give other classes high risks? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that sort of cropped up in the cases about looking through the lens of your existing contractual rights and effectively where you sit in the maturity queue and you know who's actually bearing the risk. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that um, the, the the view of the 29s was that, you know, uh, that their argument was, well, no, look, you've got to, in determining what's a fair allocation of the restructuring surplus, You've got to kind of say, you've got to look through the lens of the relevant alternative. You can't look through the lens of, well, this makes sense commercially, or these are our contractual, existing contractual rights, um, which was kind of effectively what the plan company was saying was, well, no, look, it's, it's, it's appropriate to treat different classes differently from a commercial perspective. And on the basis of their contractual rights, that's, a ju- that's justification um, to treat them differently. But they kind of accepted, and Bayfield kind of accepted that in the context of the relevant alternative, which is the relevant lens, and which Snowden stressed multiple times during the during the hearing, is that's the relevant lens for asking these questions around fairness. Um, well, no, there aren't any good justifications, or indeed any justifications, for uh, um, treating the different classes differently. Yeah, and I suppose one of the things that crops up in a lot of these deals is the company says, well, there can't be a relative alternative. This has actually been agreed by a bunch of our stakeholders, and this is the only thing that's palatable to those stakeholders. But it, this feels that, you know, that the, the judges gave that a little bit of short thrift. Yeah. You know, you have to sort of really say why you're diverging from yeah. from that. You, you, you do, you do. And, and that's that goes to kind of, so, you know, obviously the company will produce the explanatory statement and um, that kind of, the idea of that is it's meant to act as a kind of like an OM where you kind of give all of the creditors enough knowledge and information about the deal to make a, a reasoned judgment on whether to vote for or against it. And the judges were pretty unhappy with the level of detail included in the X plan around why they're deviating from the parity principle. What is the justification for it? Um, so they kind of did take issue with that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think we've sort of gone over most of the main facts. I suppose the, the other interesting point, uh, 
you mentioned very early on is about sort of Justice Snowden and his sort of hobby horse about you know the courts being effectively effectively sort of have a gun to their head effectively saying you really have to sanction this plan it's a really really tight timeline or otherwise you know there's sort of corporate armageddon all bets are off yeah (laughs) and and i got the impression that you know he was really really keen to sort of find out what the background was leading up to this case and you know whether this was really being sort of jammed on the court and the judge and the judges at the time had to make some fairly complicated um, decisions and evaluations and maybe if there was more time then the courts can have you know come up with better better decisions yeah and at the end you know at the end of the of the hearing of the hearing snowden kind of said you know can i have a, a very detailed chronology please so i can see exactly when uh, the deal was agreed when uh, the information was disseminated to the creditors when was a psl launched when was the uh, you know when, when what was the sequencing here so that i can work out exactly how badly uh, justice leach was was jammed at first instance yeah i mean it's quite um amusing that Bayfield sort of hid from that because he said I'm sorry I don't know because I wasn't present at the convening hearing I only picked this up uh, at a later date yeah, but which I, is fair enough thought the, <laughs> you know that this was something that was going to crop up and he would have been better briefed that, perhaps. that's just my view but perhaps perhaps um so we're, we're not sure when the judgment's going to be we expect it probably to be several weeks probably before you know they come to the decision and I suppose there there will be some range of outcomes in between rejecting the appeal and setting aside the original judgment yeah uh, and I, I suppose then and also there'll be potentially be some chatter in there about you know whether there's actually going to provide more guidance to the judiciary sort of further down the line because i think one of the comp- things the company was very worried about is it was like if you start you will start setting much more of a rigid sort of rule base towards how you evaluate you know plans and their view is you can't do that because every situation is very very different but but i I think that where snowden kind of where what the mood music was at least in my view is that um whilst it might not be that they kind of set out a really really clear set of kind of rules around what um how to exercise discretion there may be a starting point right so the starting point as we were just discussing is no 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 relevant alternative not contractual existing contractual rights or commercial interests that's that's not appropriate it's got to be relevant alternative if there's going to be deviation from parity principle it must be justified or through that lens yeah no i think that's a good place to leave it yeah (laughs) freddie obviously we've spent a lot of time sort of going through this and i know that some of these issues are you know can be quite complex so you know please read what we're saying and obviously look through the the skeleton arguments and the sort of previous judgment and you obviously you can try and sort of pick that part for yourselves Yeah, thanks for everyone for tuning in today. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback on this and other pods that we're putting together. And so do reach out to us on team at ninefin.com to post your views. And please check in next week to hear the latest on the US markets with uh, our US managing editor, Will Cager-Smith. And we'll be back uh, on Cloud9Fin in Europe the week after that. So see you then. <laughs>